A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Guerrero. The 11 Olympic team members slain in West Germany. The Olympic Games. So geheist waren die Brüder in Amerika. Von Kaufen schaffen es es gibt Out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little. It is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geber. Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites, and this episode is about Rav Pinchas Menachem Alter, the Pnei Menachem of Ger. And uh, before I get to that, I just want to mention, we just had yesterday, uh, the 83rd anniversary of Kristallnacht, the night of broken glass, when all over Germany and Austria, all over the Third Reich at that time, the Nazis went on an all-out pogrom, destroying uh, Jewish businesses, shuls, and homes, arresting over 30,000 Jews and sending them to concentration camps for the first time as Jews. And uh, this was uh, seen, seen by many as the beginning of the end, a very, very brutal and terrible pogrom and uh, commemorated every year. In fact, last year, there's been this custom in recent years in many shuls in Israel, and I believe in other places in the world as well, um, where they leave the uh, lights on in the shul uh, all night long on the night of November 9th and 10th, uh, the night between November 9th and 10th when Kristallnacht took place. And so I was invited last year to uh, here in Beit Shemesh to give a lecture at a shul about what led up to Kristallnacht and the refugee crisis at the German-Polish border. A very interesting uh, story as well. So hopefully one day, um, it's since the speech is still written up in my notes, uh, one day maybe we'll have an opportunity to speak about that on on um, Jewish history soundbites as well. Uh, just came back. The reason there's been very few episodes last week or so, I want to apologize. Just came back from a trip, a recent trip. It was a fantastic trip with the Shoya Mayim Shul in Toronto. And we went to Prague, uh, spent a couple of days there, Shabbos there. We were by the Chassam Seifer in Bratislava. We spent a night in Vienna, actually a couple of days before Kristallnacht. And we even got to go into the Stad Temple. Uh, shul, which was not destroyed during Kristallnacht. We had even a local Viennese uh, uh, Jew uh, who had grown up in Vienna and was part of the trip and was able to show us around Vienna. Then, of course, we did uh, Budapest and Kerastir. It was, uh, in, in Budapest, we even had a member of the trip who grew up in communist-era Budapest. So it was a very, a very nice trip. And um, and of course, if you're a shul, which, you know, if you're one of the only shuls in the world who hasn't done a trip like this yet, you don't want to be left out and uh, when everyone else is doing it. So 
You might want to organize your shul and get a group together and be in touch with me, Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com, to arrange your trip to uh, Jewish history in Europe, anywhere in Europe, anywhere where there's Jewish history. So be in touch with me. In light of the media buzz around Reb Shol Alter's recent trip to the United States, and could be it's still going on, I have no idea. Uh, so I felt like it would be an appropriate uh, time to get, give some historical perspective. Um, uh, who his father, the Pnei Menachem, the Ger Rebbe, was um, kind of like, it reminds me of the story of all those ads for life insurance companies after the Princess Diana car crash uh, that, that, that everyone said these ridiculous ads. They're capitalizing on, on, on someone else's tragedy. So I'm basically doing the same thing. I'm capitalizing on the whole popularity and media buzz uh, going on around his trip to selfishly exploit it for my own business purposes. But at least I'm transparent about it, so it's okay. I want to give a very strong disclaimer that I hope everyone remembers and takes seriously. Um, and I hope I don't get any flack or anything like this because, you know, I'm treading on eggshells and there's a lot of emotions at play here by people who take sides in this dispute, which I don't. I definitely have no connection to either side, no money invested either. So I have no agenda. I'm not taking any sides. I'm not trying to get into any politics, definitely not any Lashon Hara. None of that belongs on Jewish history sound bites. I just, this is a opportunity for some history, a historical perspective on two aspects, both the Pnei Menachem himself, which is, of course, the father of Reb Shol Alter, and a broader historical perspective as to what's going on now with his son, um, with the Pnei Menachem's son, Reb Shol Alter, and the mainstream uh, 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 Ger Accord. Of course, I'll have a future episode on the Leif Simcha. There's already been an interest expressed by someone in sponsoring it, so it's not like I'm, I'm trying to choose uh, and emphasize one part of history over the other. God forbid. Um in the great scheme of the history of the Hasidic movement, uh, one of the interesting phenomena we find is that the ebb and flow has kept it relevant and with a vitality which is almost unmatched in any other religious movement in Jewish history. And the, that ebb and flow has been enabled by a constant renewal, a constant questioning and striving for the so-called authentic Hasidus of the Baal Shem Tev, um, and, and there's always been these ups and downs. There's always been this revitalization of the movement. Uh, I can give a few examples. During the third generation of the Hasidic movement, you're talking about in the late 1700s, early 1800s, people like Rab Nachman of Breslev, uh, people like Rab Simcha, uh, not Rab Simcha, but Rab Pshischa, his Rebbe, the Yid HaKadosh, Rab Yitzchak Yaakov, Rabinovich of Pshischa, um, they, they, to a certain extent, even Rabbi Naftali of Rapshitz and people like the Bnei Saschar, uh, um, to a certain extent was, was, was similar to that. They started to question what is real Hasidus and is the, the Hasidic courts that we see in our day, is that continuing the authentic tradition of the Baal Shem Tev? Later on you have Kutsk, later on you have Ishbitz. Um, there's there's all different examples throughout the history. There's as uh, Hasidus reaches new areas or as dynasties become more institutionalized, there arises uh, this movement within the movement um, for renewal, for spiritual renewal. And 
And I think that that's what, one of the reasons that uh, Hasidus has survived until this day, and it's always been renewing itself. Uh, Neo-Hasidism in its different phases, in its different stages, including the Neo-Hasidism of today, um, is another, uh, int- you know, a fringe manifestation of that, but it's yet definitely a, a, a inherent part of the movement. You have the interesting phenomena of the Mashpiyim, of people who are, um, literal translation as influencers, but not in the social media way. You have people like Ritzi Meyer Zilberg or Meilich Biederman, who's super popular today, Rebecca Maya Morgenstern and others. And what they are is essentially people preaching Hasidus, uh, the, the service of God in the spirit of the Baal Shem Tev, And yet they don't have institutions and yet they're not yet part of a dynasty. Um, and it happens that when things become very institutionalized and even more so when they become politicized, Things go through a natural search for authenticity. That's part of the secret of the Hasidus' miraculous story of survival and its vitality and growth over the centuries. Paradoxically, the Holocaust itself gave rise to a sense of urgency and rebuilding in the post-war era, and that sustained the movement for decades. This, this, this drive to rebuild what was lost and to make that the martyrs who got killed didn't die in vain so there, that gave Hasidus in the post-war era a vitality. So now, 75 years later, we've reached somewhat of a crest. There's been this demographic and, and economic growth, political power, very established institutions, etc. So there's the beginnings of these natural feelings of stirrings, of searching for something new and fresh and spiritual. So, so th- this is definitely a natural part of the movement. And ironically... Inheritance disputes, which are quite prevalent throughout the history of the Hasidic movement, though it's definitely unpleasant, uh, but they have provided some of that vitality in many courts because competition is good for the consumer in a certain way. But in the overall movement, there's this stage of upheaval which can be seen as a normal and healthy component of the movement in the great scheme of things. That's how I see the Ribshol Alter phenomena. Uh, I hope I'm reading it correctly as far as its historical context but that's how it appears to be. And whatever side you're on, or you're neither, if you're just an outside observer, um, like most people, I imagine. So this historical perspective can be helpful in understanding what's really going on in the context of the history of a very great movement of Hasidus. Um, disputes have enhanced vitality of the movement uh, throughout history. You know, you can bring even examples from general history, the the Jesuit order in the Catholic Church, which was a Catholic counter-Reformation response, gave a certain religious and intellectual vitality to the Catholic Church, which the the Reformation kind of demanded uh, of it, because they had all these questions and all these complaints about about the establishment, and, and this was somewhat of a spiritual renewal as well. So you see that it's a, a, a quite a common human response within religious movements uh, worldwide. It's not necessarily restricted to Hasidus, and therefore um, it's quite understandable. So if now we covered that aspect, we can move on to the Pnei Menachem himself. Um, so... And as it happens, I've done quite a few Ger slash Kutsk episodes and plus many, many more on other Polish Hasidic dynasties such as Mazitz and Radomsk and others. But even within the Kutsk and, and, and Ger uh, world, Kutsk, uh, Izbitz, Ger world, I've done Jewish History Salamis has quite a few uh, um, 
episodes. You might want to check those out to get a fuller picture. We have on Kutsk, we have on the Kutsk Ishbitz dispute. I have another one on Ishbitz itself. Um, other ones, uh, you know, disputes in the Kutsger dynasties throughout its history. Uh, I've had another one on uh, other leaders of, of within the Ger uh, court, uh, great great uh, Torah leaders who were not the Rebbe themselves, uh, which is interesting. In pre-war Poland, I think it was called All the King's Men, if I'm not mistaken. I had another one on the Sfas Emes. There was another one, an early, early one, a short clip, audio clip on the Ger Rebbe, the Imre Emes. And of course, there's uh, quite a few references to Ger in, through its in the politics and Aguda episodes uh, and a few more. But if we get, if we want to focus uh, this one on the Pnei Menachem of Ger, Pinchas Menachem Alter, he was only the Ger Rebbe for three and a half years, uh, quite a short period of time. He was the youngest child of the Ger Rebbe, Rebbe Avram Mordechai Alter, who's later known after his passing as the Imre Emes. So he, he, the Rebbe Pinchas Menachem is the, is the son uh, from the second marriage of the Ger Rebbe. And he was an incredibly, incredibly beloved individual, very, very, um, very dominant uh, characteristic of his was that he was beloved by quite a, quite a wide spectrum of, of, uh, of followers, not necessarily within the Ger uh, Hasidic court. He was also known for his leadership and for being a phenomenal Torah scholar with an incredible breadth of knowledge across all areas of Torah. Uh, but what he's remembered by many is, is a warmth, a personal connection, accessibility, a simplicity, certain modesty with no airs about him. And, uh, and his story is an interesting story because he grows up in Poland as a child of the Gareba, much younger than his elder half-siblings. And then he comes uh, to Israel with his father escaping from the war and, and emerges as the Ger Rosh Yeshiva and later a leader in Agudas Yisrael, and towards the end of his life, for a short period of time, as the Gareb as well. So where does he come from? So what I uh, you know, like to emphasize, and I believe is, 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 is a strong characteristic of the Pnei Menachem, is the fact, is the mother's, his mother's side of his family, because all his siblings shared the same father, uh, the Gareb, or, or the, the Imre Emes, but they don't share the same mother. And he comes from the Biederman side of the family, his mother was a Biederman. Uh, I spoke about Rabbi Yaakov Meir Biederman on, on the episode about, uh, about, um, about uh, different leaders and rabbis in, in, uh, in the Gera court pre-war in Poland. Um, so I don't want to overplay the genetic or, or the race card, but to me the primary differences between the entire biography and leadership of the Pnei Menachem, as, a, as, as opposed to his siblings and his brothers, can be attributed to the fact that he was a Biederman. Uh, more importantly, the Pnei Menachem is, this, is I, think, I think, the sole surviving grandchild of Rebekah Meir Biederman. He had a Levin son-in-law, and there are descendants of the Levins, but I'm not sure if those descendants are from the Biederman marriage or a second marriage. I, could really, I should really check that before I open my mouth. Um, so there might be some Levin descendants, so i got to double-check that. All, all or most of the children and grandchildren of Rebecca Meir Biederman were killed in Treblinka. Um, Rebecca Meir Biederman's daughter, Fagi, married, was his brother-in-law, the Ger Rebbe. So, you know, it gets confusing. I get confused myself. Rebecca Meir Biederman was, was a son-in-law of the Svas Emes. He was married to the sister of the Ger Rebbe, the Emre Emes. 
And then his his daughter, uh, Fagi, uh, marries uh, the do- his brother-in-law. The Gareb marries his niece, essentially, in his second marriage. Um, and and Rapinchas Menachem is the child. Um, and Rapinchas Menachem is this grandchild of Rabbi Akamir Biederman. He later devoted some years of his life and some of his scholarly output to publish the Torah of his illustrious grandfather. So he has this close connection to his grandfather, Rabbi Akamir Biederman. Uh, Rabbi Akamir Biederman was for many years in the court of Ger, very close with his father in law, the Svasemes, when his father in law, the Svasemes, was still the Ger Rebbe. In fact, the Svasemes quotes him, cites him quite a few times in his Sefer on Shas. He's quoting his son-in-law. In, in fact, the one who puts together this forum of the Svasemes is his son-in-law, Rabbi Yaakov Meir Biederman. And then he becomes a close chassid of his brother-in-law, uh, the Imre Amos, when, he, uh, when his uh, father-in-law passes away. Um, Rabbi Yaakov Meir Biederman eventually moves from Ger to Warsaw during World War I and stays there. And he becomes one of the leaders of Warsaw Jewry and essentially one of the leaders of Polish Jewry. He's on the Mayetzis Gedele Atayr of Agudas Yisrael, and he's part of the the Kailal Poilin of, uh, of, of, of the supporting the the uh, the uh, Polish members of the Yerushalayim uh, uh, Jewish community of the old Yishuv. So he's one of the ones who oversees the fundraising and the support of Kailal Poilin in Yerushalayim. And in 1935, he becomes part of the Bezdin in Warsaw. He's one of the rabbis of Warsaw uh, Jewry, uh, and he he visited um, Eretz Yisrael, the land of Israel, Palestine at the time, uh, more than once. He was part of an Agudas Yisrael delegation to the land of Israel, together with some of the others, uh, great leaders of his day. Um, so see, he was at the you know the forefront of Polish Jewry. He had diabetes, which he suffered from his whole life, but he did not have access to insulin in the Warsaw Ghetto, so he passed away quite early on in the war, even though he had an opportunity to escape beforehand. He did not, and he's buried in the Warsaw Jewish Cemetery uh, together with his uh, grandfather, who is also, who is also Rabbi Yaakov David Biederman, and they literally share the same uh, matzeva. So the Pnei Menachem is his grandson, and the Biedermans were brilliant. Rabbi Yaakov Biederman was a genius. He was a tremendous Talmud Chacham. He was known as one of the greatest Talmud Chacham in the entire Poland. He was a, really a, a unique Torah scholar, a, a, a brilliant genius. And it seems that the Pnei Menachem and that Biederman side of his genes uh, quite much uh, uh, received that trait. He was also a brilliant, brilliant. I mean, all everyone in Gar was, uh, in the family was, but Pnei Menachem was unique among his his siblings and in his family, and this, and his brilliance, and his the breath, the simple, the it used to strike people with with awe about his, the the breadth of his knowledge and what he knew. Um, so he's the youngest child of the Ger Rebbe, and um, and he he related that actually as a child he uh, went was with his mother on a on a train with the Chavetz Chaim, and his mother brought him over to the Chavetz Chaim to get uh, receive a, a blessing. And the Chavetz Chaim saw that it was the Ger Rebetzin. He stood up and he said, uh, you know, a wife of a Talmud Chacham is akin to a Torah scholar himself. And then his mother asked the Chavetz Chaim to receive a blessing for her son, for her son, her young child standing there to have Yiras Shemayim, fear of heaven. And the Chavetz Chaim answered that, uh, that that doesn't go with a blessing for Yiras Shemayim. One must toil and toil and toil for Yiras Shemayim. It does not work with uh, simply receiving a blessing for your Yerushalayim. Either way, 
the Pnei or Pinchas Menachem, the young boy, has a bar mitzvah in Poland. It was the last great event of Hasidic Poland before it was all destroyed. Less than two months before the war breaks out, his father, the Rebbe, was quite old, and he has this bar mitzvah celebration for his youngest child. Thousands attended, and this, in the minds of many of the old Polish Hasidim, is the last great event of Polish Jewry, of Polish Hasidic Jewry, before everything gets destroyed and everything falls apart. Um, he escapes with his father in April 1940, several months after Wetherbrook breaks out. They make it to Palestine. And his father, in an interesting um, interesting decision, hires as a private tutor for his young son a, a fascinating individual named Rebchaikul Maletsky, who was a, a, a Litvak, a Lithuanian Jew, who was a Novartiker. He had, was a student of Novartik, and he was a very prominent uh, uh, leader in the Navardic world, had opened branches of Navardic in Europe, and then it was in, in, in Eretz Yisrael, he was the, the Rosh Yeshiva, the Chai Olam Yeshiva, he was, it's interesting, I once uh, noted that, that, uh, that Kutsk and Navardic share a lot of similarities in their, in their radicalism, uh, in their radical approach to the service of God, and, and here you have a Kind of a, they meet, Katska Navardic meets, Reb Chaikul Maletsky, this product of Navardic, is hired to tutor Reb Pinchas Menachem Alter, the youngest son of the Ger Rebbe. So, so he's his tutor, he grows up and he eventually marries uh, Tsipora, a surviving granddaughter of Ramesha Bitzal Alter, who was the, the Ger Rebbe's uh, uh, you know, brother, who was very close with, I spoke about him in several other episodes, and an amazing individual. You can uh, find it when I spoke about him on at least uh, at least two other occasions, uh, I think more. And um, Ramesh Mitzal was, of course, killed in Treblinka, so this was a surviving uh, granddaughter. So because the Alter family always married first cousins and nieces, it gets very confusing. I get very confused myself, so I'm going to attempt to organize the Pnei Menachem Zichas here. And if you tune out because it's too confusing or boring, then just tune right back in in another two minutes when I'm going to wrap it up and move on. So the Bnei Menachem's father is, of course, the Ger Rebbe the Imre Emes. His father's brother-in-law was Rabbi Yaakov Meir Biederman, who I mentioned earlier, the son-in-law of the Svas Emes. But he was also the father-in-law of the Imre Emes for his second marriage because the Imre Emes married his niece, Fege Minche Biederman, who was previously married to someone named Temkin. Uh, so this was the Pnei Menachem's mother. Sir Yaakov Meir Biederman was his grandfather and his uncle. Interesting. Just to make it more confusing, Rabbi Yaakov Meir Biederman had another daughter, Chaya Sarah, who married Rabbi Yisrael Alter, the future Rebbe of the Beis Yisrael, and the older half-brother of the Pnei Menachem. So she and her children were killed by the Nazis, um, and then and, and Rabbi Yisrael Alter remarried uh, later on. The Beis Yisrael married, did not have children from his second marriage. Uh, either way, Rabbi Pinchas Menachem goes ahead and marries a granddaughter of Rabbi Shabbat Alter, who's his uncle, because it's his father's brother. So the Pnei Menachem's children, in other words, Rabbi Shol Alter, uh, are children of the Pnei Menachem. They're grandchildren of the Ger Rebbe, the Mrayemis. They're great-grandchildren of Rabbi Shabbat Alter and Rabbi Yaakov Meir Biederman and the Svas Emes, all at the same time. So it's a very interesting uh, lineage that they have. Um... But after the passing of the Imre Emes, so the Pnei Menachem, Rabbinichus Menachem, moves in with his mother into the apartment in the Yeshiva Sfas Emes, near the Machane Yehuda Shuk, 
in the middle of Yerushalayim, and that's where he remains for the rest of his life, a little three-room apartment, old and dilapidated, very simple and old furniture. Pretty shocking that a Rebbe at his level and the size of his Hasidic court lived as simply as he did with the furnishings, as simple that he, that he was. It was really, really a manifestation and expression of Polish Kotsk, especially when you compare it to the homes and lifestyles of some of the other Rebbes of his day. Um, what he did for a living was he managed a bookstore for several years. And then in 1957, he's appointed by his brother-in-law, Rabbi Sol Alter, who's by now the Ger Rebbe, to be the Rosh Yeshiva of the Svas Emes Yeshiva, which is the flagship of the entire Ger network. Um, and he remains there for decades. This is the main yeshiva. This educates generations of students and the rebuilding of the Ger court to a large extent, happens through this yeshiva. And he's the Rosh Yeshiva. So he's the Rosh Yeshiva, he's giving shiurim, he has the Rebbeim there, and this becomes the center. He's an educator, he's Talmud Chacham. An interesting side note to his Rosh Yeshiva career is the fact that the current Tolner Rebbe, Rabbi Yitzchak Menachem Weinberg, was drawn close to Ger by the Beis Yisrael, the Ger Rebbe, and subsequently was hired as a Rebbe in the Svasem Yeshiva. And in that capacity, he became extremely close with the Pnei Menachem, and he was one of the closest people to him, and he actually even kept a diary or notes of his conversations with him, which caused a bit of controversy in the past when some of it was was uh, was revealed and whatever. It still continues to be a topic today. In effect, today's Talna, which is originally a Ukrainian Chernobyl court, is basically run similar to a Polish Gerer court. So it has as much to do with Talna as the average Hungarian descendant who calls himself a Litvak in Lakewood or Brisk. But I digress, and I go back to the Pnei Menachem. Pnei Menachem is also the, eventually the head of the Agudis Yisrael. Even before he was the head of the Agudis Yisrael, he was a member of the Moyetza Skedeli HaTayra of the Agudis Yisrael. So it's really two different jobs. As one of the leading Torah scholars in Israel, he was a member of the Moyetza Skedeli HaTayra. But on a very political uh, level, he becomes the head of the president, essentially, of Agudas Yisrael. It was called the Yoishev Reish, the ones who, basically the CEO, the head. Um, it was a very political uh, and strange maneuver. He's appointed by his brother, the Beis Yisrael, upon the passing of their legendary brother-in-law, Rabbi Shemaya Levin, uh, who was the head of Agudas Yisrael from its days in Poland. The, their, their father, the Emreyemes, the Gerebbe, had once said, Echob makriv geven ein kind afti mezbeach fun de Agude. I, I sacrificed one child on the altar of the Aguda. In other words, he had his son in law, Richard Meyer Levin, dedicate his life to politics, um, and that was his sacrifice. Um, and uh, and Richard Meyer Levin was the head of the Aguda in Poland, he was the head of the Aguda in Israel, he was a member of the Knesset, and he was, he was, he was it. He was Aguda Sisrael. So when he passes away in 1971, the Beis Yisrael turns to his brother, his younger half brother, the Rosh Hashiva, Pinchas Menachem and appoints him the head of a Yisrael, which is a very political position, especially in Israel. So for a Rosh Yeshiva, and possibly even a future Rebbe, it was a very strange choice to push someone, push someone like that into a completely political position. Why was that done? Why? That's a, you know, a question that can hang in the air. Was that beginning of a rift or a tension between the brothers? Um, was that was that was that a statement? What what was the Beis Yisrael trying to do? It's unclear. 
um, but it was definitely a question at the time. So an interesting thing that as a Hasidic Rebbe and a leader on one hand, and as a world-class Rosh Yeshiva and Torah scholar on the other hand, he had gained the profound respect of, uh, of the, the Bnei Menachem of leading Torah scholars around the world, especially from non-Hasidic circles. And that much is understandable. What makes things even more interesting is what happens is there's eventually a split in the Agudas Yisrael, which essentially um, was done by Rav Shach uh, in the 1980s, and it was primarily you know, against the leaders of Agudas Yisrael, which was Ger, uh, the campaign, which took place not under the tenure of Ichamai 11 in the 1960s, but rather under the tenure of Rav Pinchas Menachem Alter. So uh, that's very interesting. On the other hand, if we don't focus on the political leader of Agudas Yisrael at the time, we focus on the Rebbe, it took place uh, when the Lev Simcha, Rabbi Simcha Bonam Alter, was the Rebbe of Ger, and not when the Beis Yisrael, Rabbi Yisrael Alter, was the Rebbe of Ger, which uh, he had already passed on by the time Rav Shach did that split from Agudas Yisrael. Either way, it happened uh, in the 1980s, and that strange saga is a, quote, too soon piece of history, which I'm not going to delve into now, but it's worth analyzing one day. It's an interesting story. As it happens... Uh, as the head of Agudas Yisrael, Rav Pinchas Menachem Alter, and it was already in his brother, uh, his uh, his elder half brother, the Lev Simcha's later years when he was already quite ill. So Rav Pinchas Menachem was largely responsible for returning political unity on a somewhat superficial level by having the Degel Hatayra and Agudas Yisrael political factions run on a unified compromise ticket political ticket in 1992, which is a situation that sort of continues until today, again, sort of, um, but but he that was the, in his capacity uh, as a political leader. He was also one of the heads of Chinuch Atzmoy, he was also one of the heads of Mifal Hashas, um, and then in 1992, his older brother, the Lev Simcha, passes away, and the Pnei Menachem becomes the Ger Rebbe. He becomes, uh, as the third brother, it was, it was a whole discussion, it was a whole issue, but it was eventually he, he was decided uh, in some sort of compromise agreement, it's unclear exactly the details, but that he's going to become the Rebbe uh, as the third and youngest brother and the youngest son of the Emreyemes, and uh, eventually it would revert back to the ch- children, the child of the Lev Simcha, when the time comes, that was the current Ger Rebbe. Uh, so... The Pnei Menachem, during his short tenure as rabbi, was a bit different than uh, previous rabbis. He spoke more personally. He spoke more lengthy. He was less cryptic than previous Ger rabbis had been. He spoke more at length and explained and, and gave longer talks at his Titian. Uh, he was more accessible. He spoke uh, very often publicly, which also was not so common. Uh, he had a lengthier davening, which was also not uh, you know very different than the Ger distinction of the quick davening. Um, he uh, had lengthier meetings with his Hasidim when they arrived to speak with him. And he attracted quite a following outside of Ger, outside of the Ger court, which was also quite rare. It had not really happened up until that point. Um, so he, he was unique in many respects in, 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 in the way he led the Hasidis during that short time. Someone once submitted uh, to the Pnei Menachem a kvittel for Yeres Shemayim. He said, you know something, I need that too. Let's daven for each other. Um, I, I heard from a, a uh, personally from someone who descends from the Ger Rebbe, from the Heine family. Um, so he, he related to me that um, that the that the Pnei came to his bar mitzvah and it was a couple of months after he had become the Rebbe. And he said uh, he got up to speak and he said, you know, I'm a new Rebbe, 
you can give me a chance. Let me speak, and you know, and and and, and uh, you know, give me a chance. Like he was very personable, very real, very down to earth. And he gave up, you know, got up and gave a speech, which was, uh, you know, uh, uh, again, uh, uh, like I said, quite unique in the history of Ger Rebbe's. One time there was a chassid of the uh, the the Menachem had a funny story. A young boy, uh, a child of this chassid, woke in the middle of the night and found that his parents were not home. They apparently a medical emergency had pulled them away. So concerned and scared, the boy remembered that his father had taught him that whenever there's a problem, you call the Rebbe. So he went to the telephone book and he looked up the Rebbe's phone number and called. And what was unique, again, about the Pnei Menachem is sometimes he answered the phone himself. And he did. And the boy tells the Rebbe that he's scared because he's alone. His parents aren't home. And the Rebbe reassures him that everything's going to certainly be all right. And his parents, of course, are going to return shortly. And he encourages the boy to go back to sleep. But the boy replies that he's too nervous. So the Rebbe starts to tell him stories. The next morning, the father finds out that his son called the Pnei Menachem and he kept him on the phone for so long, he ran to the Rebbe to ask him for forgiveness. The Rebbe replied with a smile and he says, a home in which it is taught that whenever there's a problem, one calls the Rebbe, that is a good home. So that's a great story. There was once a Sephardic woman who came to, uh, uh, paid a Shiva visit after the Pnei Menachem's passing to his family. So they asked her, what's your connection to the Rebbe? So he said, we had a sick child in our home, and the Pnei Menachem sent us thousands of dollars to cover the medical expenses. And she said, we had never met the Rebbe. We put an ad in Hamodia with the P.O. box number, and he sent money to the P.O. box without having ever known who we were or who or anything. It's interesting, the Pnei Menachem was a bit of a rightist politically. He visited Beit El, which I'm not sure how many future Rebbes, he was not yet the Rebbe, this is before he became uh, the Rebbe, but I don't know how many future Rebbes visited settlements, uh, but he went. And when the Oslo Accords were passed, he said in the very Polish-style ger humor, he said, I don't understand these Zionists. Back in Poland, they kept on telling us that they want to leave Poland and make and create a state. Now they finally have one and they're giving it away? Um, so he had, you know, very strong leadership. He was a phenomenal Talmud Chacham, even for Ger standards. Like I said, he was also an orator. He spoke more at length. He even in the decades before he was the rabbi, he was the mouthpiece of his brothers to the of the Agudas Yisrael to the world. He would come to the Aguda Convention in the United States. He had a relationship with Ramesha Feinstein, who was quite impressed with him. Um, Ramesha Feinstein was not someone who got impressed pretty easily, which is another story. Um, Pnei Menachem had a son, Reb Aryeh, who got, unfortunately got killed in a car accident quite young, but the Pnei Menachem sent him to get smicha from Reb Meisha Feinstein. And Reb Meisha Feinstein, who was already elderly and ill, and no longer gave, uh, you know, issued rabbinical ordination, when he heard it was the son of the Pnei Menachem, he, he tested him and, and, and gave him uh, smicha. The passing of the Pnei Menachem was on the night after Purim, several hours after his Purim tish. And it was quite sudden and quite shocking to most and then they uh, went and buried him, uh, not in Harazesim, not near his brothers, uh, uh, on Harazesim, in a cave. There's a Ger cave where the, where the Leif Simcha and the Yis Yisrael are buried. That's not where he's buried. But rather they buried him in the courtyard of the yeshiva where he had lived all the years, next to his father, the Imre Emes, where he was buried also in that courtyard, right off the Machane Yehudashuk. I bring groups there all the time. And... Um, and uh, so it's 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 a very interesting story. It was a he had a long career in public service and leadership as a Rashiva in politics, but it was merely a three and a half years as the official Rebbe. He passed away relatively at the young age of sixty nine. 
So one of the great speculative what-ifs that we can just have fun and speculate about and what-if about is had he lived until an old age and not died at the age of 69, if let's say, for instance, he'd still be alive today, he'd be 95, which is not unheard of for a rabbi or a rabbi to be of that age. We've seen that before. So if that would have happened, then Ger and Israel uh, would look very different, especially in light of Ger the last couple of decades and the whole Reb Shol Alter thing today, what's going on. Had the Pnei Menachem lived longer, things may have looked mighty different. So this is Yehudi Geber with the Jewish History Soundbites. You can reach me at Yehuda at YehudiGeber.com for questions, comments, sources, tours, trips, sponsorships, and lectures. You can subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.